Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So far on the podcast, we've talked at length about the benefits of network effects that are inherent in a marketplace business model. But what we haven't spent so much time on is how exactly you get that flywheel going. And specifically what I mean by that is how we should think about the relationship between how much you should pay to acquire a new user on your platform and how much revenue that user and their resultant network effects will generate for you over time. So that is why I am very excited to announce Jeff Fleur, the former CEO and co-founder of StubHub as today's podcast guest. Given StubHub's positioning as the pioneering online ticket marketplace, I figured Jeff would be much more qualified to talk about marketplace unit economics than I would be. Now, Jeff himself started his career in private equity at Blackstone prior to matriculating at Stanford Business School. And about halfway through his experience at GSB, Jeff founded StubHub and ultimately dropped out to run the business full-time for seven years prior to selling the business to eBay. And since then, Jeff has been quite busy, having angel invested in companies like House, Twilio, Warby Parker, and ZocDoc, in addition to founding another startup called Spreecast. So in today's episode, Jeff and I reflect on his successes and lessons learned scaling both StubHub and Spreecast, as well as how he vets new hires. Additionally, Jeff and I discuss what he looks for in startups now that he's investing full-time as a general partner at Kraft Ventures. So why don't we get started? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking some time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, John. Great. So why don't we kick off with a little bit about your background and your founding stories? Sure. So yeah, I'll give you kind of the not too slow version and then we can go deeper on anything you want to go deeper on. So I grew up in New Jersey. I went to University of Pennsylvania, studied finance and engineering at Penn. And my first job was in leverage buyouts at the Blackstone Group in New York City. So it was kind of working on these big manufacturing buyouts of kind of pretty boring companies in middle America. And so I was at Blackstone from 96 to 98, and this was when Internet 1.0 was kind of coming of age. So you had companies like Netscape and Amazon and Yahoo that were all going public, and it was super exciting time. So I decided I wanted to kind of get into the technology world and get out of these boring manufacturing companies that I was dealing with. So I moved out to the West Coast. I originally got a job at another private equity firm in San Francisco and then went to Stanford Business School because I decided I actually wanted to start a company. So at Stanford, I, in the middle of my first year is when I started StubHub. And so there were two of us who started the company. We were both first years at Stanford and we wrote a business plan for the annual business plan competition at Stanford. And we were selected as one of the six finalists in this competition. And we didn't actually want to win the competition. We wanted to start the company and we felt that if we won the competition, we would attract too much attention to the company and we would then attract competition as well. So we didn't show up for the final day. We were one of the six finalists, but only five finalists actually showed up on the day. You know, The idea was you would pitch to judges. The judges were, I think, were all venture capitalists and they would pick a winner and then you'd get some sort of either grant or loan from the university. So we didn't show up for that day and we actually incorporated the company and started the company. And I finished my first year at Stanford, but I dropped out and did not go back for my second year. So the timing was interesting because we incorporated StubHub in March of 2000 and in April of 2000, which was the very next month, 
the entire internet stock market had sort of like cratered. So like these companies that had gone public and there were dozens of them, you know, had gotten huge valuations in the public markets. And then they cratered like 80, 90% valuation drops in the course of 60 days. And so it was an interesting time to be starting an internet company, especially a consumer internet company. So anyway, so I started StubHub and we, I guess I'll go through the whole timeline and then we can kind of go back and talk about all these things. But, you know, started StubHub. I was the CEO from the inception through the sale to eBay in 2007. It was about a seven year run, a lot of fun, a lot of ups and downs, you know, a lot of learnings about starting a company and about entrepreneurship and about people and business. And then when we sold it to eBay in 2007, Two weeks after we sold the company, my first child was born. So my son, who's now you know almost 12 years old, was born. And it took off some time. I took off like three years. We traveled with my wife and my son. And then I had a second child, my daughter. And then I knew I wanted to get back into the game. I thought it would only be like a year I would take off. It turned out to be like three and a half years. But then I started another company, which was called Spreecast in the live video space. And what we were trying to do is really kind of bring live video technology to kind of social media. So marrying some of the tech of say Skype with some of the dynamics around, you know, public sharing and connecting with platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And so that business didn't work out, pivoted a couple of times through various products, kind of all within that same general sphere and then decided to wrap it up after we had a couple of products that got some scale, but not enough to make them interesting businesses. And then about a year later, I joined Kraft. So that's sort of the timeline. And now I'm a partner here at Kraft. We're a, a boutique early stage venture firm focused on investing primarily in software centric businesses. So we do a lot of different things within software, but anything, I tend to focus on marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, but as a firm, we also look at you know SaaS and enterprise businesses. We look at companies that are doing, you know, blockchain, AR, VR, artificial intelligence, and other areas. That's great. And I think what really resonated to me there was when I was thinking about my next steps after starting an investment banking at Goldman, where there's the standard route of two years in banking and then two years in mega fund buyouts at somewhere like a Blackstone, where you're often evaluating sleepier and mature businesses that you lever up six times and eke out 6% EBITDA margins. And that really wasn't something that I was interested in, which ultimately led me to join Norwest, where I could wake up every day excited about enabling this next wave of technology that could hopefully revolutionize this world. So, for example, a company like StubHub, right? So with StubHub specifically, what were the pain points in the market at the time that you guys were looking to solve? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I was a first year at Stanford Business School. The backdrop was that this was internet 1.0, right? And I had left the buyout world to get into technology and I decided that I wanted to start a company. And that's kind of one of the reasons I went to Stanford was because I thought it would be a great place to you know, connect with other people and to have some extra time to put a business plan together and to start a company. Whereas working full-time, it's tougher to get that bandwidth. So the two founders, myself and my co-founder, we were at lunch one day and we were talking, both of us had sort of this same aspiration to do something entrepreneurial. And we were talking about, you know, different industries and different spaces. And both of us had some experience with being season ticket holders. So my father at the time was a Yankees season ticket holder and his father was a Lakers season ticket holder. So both of us kind of knew what happened when you had these extra season tickets, extra tickets for games that you couldn't use. 
And a lot of times they would go to waste in a desk drawer. They would just be unused tickets. Other times you might give them to friends or try to sell them on you know, eBay or sell them to a ticket broker. And so we felt like there should be a much simpler and more transparent and safer way of dealing with tickets in the secondary market. When I say safer, I mean, there were a lot of trust issues around particularly from ticket buyers of people buying tickets from, you know, ticket scalpers outside the venue, selling tickets, you know, out of their kind of trench coat, you know, in the back of the trunks of their car kind of thing. And we knew that there was some consumer trust issues around that. And, you know, the trust issues might have been overblown to some extent, but there was some risk that you would get a ticket, you know, that was not good and that would not work at the venue when you got there. So we wanted to create more transparency and put like a bright light on this industry and create more trust and safety in the industry. And so that lunch was really the germination of StubHub. And then, as I mentioned, we wrote a business plan for the competition and kind of that was the beginning. And as I think about starting StubHub back in the day, there was a real lack of information and knowledge on how to build the next great startup, right? So you didn't have all the VC blogs and all of the content out there that now tells you how to do X or set up Y. So then what are some of the lessons you learned through trial and error while building StubHub? Yeah. So, I mean, there were a ton of lessons, obviously. I would say a couple things that I would point out. First, I would say it's really hard. Starting a company and building it and having success and exiting successfully is really hard. And I don't say that as a way to like pat myself on the back for having succeeded. I just mean like the, I have a ton of respect for entrepreneurs who go through that. And obviously I've done it once successfully and once not so successfully. So that second experience also kind of gave me some perspective as well on how hard it is. So I think one thing is it's really hard. I say a second thing is hiring great people and delegating as you're scaling is paramount to success. I think for me, when I was 25 or 24 years old, when I started StubHub and, you know, there was this desire to sort of control everything and do everything myself. And for a while it was, you know, hard for me to delegate. And I think we had good people, but I would often want to be involved in everything. And so like getting past that and being able to give other people accountability and trust other people and, you know, successfully delegate responsibilities, I think is another key thing that I learned how important that is. And it can be very liberating too, because once you're sort of able to do that, it's like you have more time, you're not in the weeds on everything. And sometimes people will make a mistake. And sometimes, you know, you might think you wouldn't have made the same mistake, but those mistakes are outweighed by the benefits that you get when you build an organization where people can their own decisions and you can feel comfortable delegating them. And with that, though, what are the specific qualities that you look for in those top tier candidates? Yeah, so I tend to look much more at someone's nature as a person than I do at, for example, their experience. So I look for things like their curiosity, their creativity, their intelligence, their persistence, their passion for the body of work that we're working on. And I care less about what job they had last or have they done these specific tasks that I need them to do. There are some exceptions to that, obviously. So if you're looking for software developers, like they need to know how to write code. You can't just hire really smart people who don't know how to write code because the learning curve is too steep and too long for them to kind of get up fast enough. But I think it's generally true with non-technical roles and, and business roles where people don't necessarily need to have experience doing exactly what you need them to do. They can learn how to do that if they've got those right raw characteristics that I just mentioned. 
But how do you tease that out in, let's say, a 30-minute interview format, right? Yeah, it's hard. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not saying it's easy to get that right. I think it is hard to get it right in a one-time interview. I think if you're hiring really important senior roles, like you generally aren't doing it off of one interview. You're spending a little bit more time with the person. They're interviewing with multiple people within your company. You are probably spending having multiple interviews with them if they're going to be one of your direct reports. So I think, and sometimes there'll be other touch points like having dinner or having a meal with someone. And just getting to know them better. And also, hopefully, there's someone who you have some sort of shared contacts with. So it's not just somebody kind of completely random, but you know someone who they know, or you know someone well who they've worked with or worked for in the past. So you've got other reference points on them. But I think through triangulating through various channels, both spending time with them yourself and understanding what other people think of them and how their past experience has reflected on some of the characteristics that you're looking for, you can start to get a good picture. But having said that, you know, my own experience and what I've seen both at my own companies as well as other companies that I've invested in is the rate of hiring senior people, you know, that don't work out is fairly high, right? Like it's probably 20 to 30% of the time you hire someone in a VP level role and a year later, they're not there. That's about the rate I've seen with my own things and with, with other companies that I've involved with. So it's hard to get it right and you don't get it right sometimes. That all makes sense. And I personally believe that hiring is the single most difficult aspect of building any business. But going back to StubHub, what were the main KPIs and metrics that you tracked to gauge the health of the business? Yeah, I think for us, a lot of it came down to unit economics of the transactions at StubHub. So we were looking at things like, you know, what the customer acquisition costs were. We were doing a lot of paid acquisition through various channels, and we wanted to really have very close view of weekly and, and daily even what we were spending to acquire new customers. You know, and then the other side of that is the lifetime value of those customers, which has to do with how much do they spend, how often do they purchase. So we also looked a lot at things like repeat usage and cohort analyses. So looking at things like, okay, you acquire a group of users in a given month for that group or cohort, how often are people transacting over the following 12 months? How much are they spending as a group? And you can get a real sense of, you know, your lifetime value of, a, of an individual customer by looking at kind of these cohorts and understanding the repeat usage and then therefore how much you're willing to spend. And, and so we would sort of vary how aggressive or conservative we wanted to be with respect to our customer acquisition costs. When we knew the lifetime value, at times we might say, hey, we really want to kind of be a little bit more conservative now and we want to make money on the very first transaction. We want it to be the break even on the very first transaction they do. Other times we're like, screw it, we're going to spend more money than we make on the first transaction because we know that over a course of 12 or 24 months, we're going to be profitable. And so we would potentially look further out the more aggressive we were being in terms of how much credit we would give those users on the customer acquisition cost. So those were the kind of the key drivers. Another thing that was very important for us as a metric at StubHub was something we called the sell-through rate, which was, you know, for every 100 tickets that get posted into the platform, what percentage of those would actually sell? Those were some of the key metrics. Got it. And eventually you sold to eBay in a very successful exit. So could you share some of your lessons learned from that process? Yeah. So, I mean, the backstory with eBay was they had approached us a number of times. You know, we, as I mentioned, it was a, for me, it was a seven year kind of journey at StubHub. So I started the company and about seven years later, we sold it. And so during the course of those seven years, they'd approached us probably three or four times, starting maybe a year and a half after we started the company. And we never got really serious with them. Those conversations never got 
very involved because they never offered a, an amount that made any sense and we were never willing to sell the business. And our relationship with eBay kind of grew over time because there were a couple of touch points where we were spending time with them. One was on the government relations side. So both of us were lobbying to try to change a lot of the ticket scalping laws. There were a lot of laws in different states. These were state by state laws. And we were trying to go to these state congressmen and congresswomen to try to change law and try to draft new bills and change the laws. And they were very aligned with us on that. So we were kind of working with them on that. We also you know, just knew the people that were responsible for tickets and kind of would speak on panels with them and see them at events. And so we kind of knew them pretty well. They had approached us a few times. We had turned them down a few times. And then when they kind of approached us the final time, you know, the values that they were talking about started to get in the neighborhood of what I thought was reasonable at the time, what I think the board felt was at least in the zone. And so that was the first piece of it. The second piece of it was I had been doing it for seven years. I think it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a rewarding experience, but there were definitely parts of it that I felt like I wanted to be on to the next thing in my career. I didn't want to run the company for the rest of my life. And, you know, there were parts of being a CEO of a 400 person company that I felt like were not as exciting to me as like starting something new and being kind of in those very early kind of years. And so... I was sort of getting ready personally to move on. So there was that element of it. And my wife was pregnant with our first kid. I think I mentioned before my son was born two weeks after the deal closed. So I was kind of also like looking forward to spending some time with my kid and the, the startup life was pretty all encompassing. Although by that time, admittedly, it had gotten a little bit better because we had like a real team and I wasn't grinding the way I had been early on. So I think all those things went into my decision, at least that, you know, I felt like it was worth negotiating with them to see if we could get to a value that actually, you know, was a fair price for the business. And so we negotiated with them and ultimately got to a valuation that we thought was reasonable based on where the business was and took a lot of risk off the table. That was actually the other thing I should mention, which is you know, there were still a lot of risks with the company. And I find this too in some of my own investing where even once companies are getting into the you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of valuation, a lot of these companies still have significant risk. And there's been plenty of stories of companies that get into the unicorn territory that then don't make it or companies that raise $100 million and then you know shut down. So, I mean, this was a generation ago. So the numbers were sort of smaller, but we had a lot of risk around the regulatory environment and there were all of these ticket scalping laws and there were some challenges with that because there were people who were selling tickets for above legal limits on StubHub, you know, every day. And so we had letters from attorneys general, we had, you know, lawsuits from folks like the Patriots. And so there were just some things about that that also it wasn't clear exactly how that was going to play out over time. And so all of these things kind of went into my calculus of saying like, yeah, this is, this could make sense. And so we ultimately negotiated with them. We got to a price of 310 million. In retrospect, it's worth a lot more today, right? Now, the timing of this podcast is a little bit coincidental because as you may know, there's an effort among some stockholders that are big shareholders in eBay that are activist shareholders to basically spin off the StubHub business. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether or not eBay does spin off StubHub, but the valuation that people talk about is kind of in the four to $5 billion range. So clearly it's worth a lot more today than what I sold it for. So, you know, in that regard, it was early. I still think it was a pretty fair price for what we had at the time, which was 12 years ago, but the business has grown and it's done well within eBay. And speaking about value, what were some things that you wish you had done or you had known at the time in order to increase that eventual sale price? 
I mean, I think the, the key thing to maximizing the valuation that I didn't do, that I could have done, was to not sell at that time. You know, there might have been some other means in the negotiation to get kind of on the margin more money or to have a more competitive process. But I don't think it would have been anywhere near as material in terms of the ultimate delta between what we actually sold it for and what we could have sold it for as if we would have just waited, right? Like if I would have not sold it in 2007 and instead waited another five years, the company would have been worth a lot more. And, you know, I think the business was still growing a lot when we sold it. And there's a couple caveats to that because in 2008, the economy went through a big disruption. It was sort of the huge dislocation and stock market values dropped a lot. So we, we would have had two or three years there of, less friendly capital markets. And to the extent we needed cash, it would have been tougher for us to raise capital during that time. The business was already generating cash at the time we sold it to eBay. So I think we could have gotten through that somewhat dark macroeconomic time, but we would have been alone as like a, you know, a relatively small company and it might've been tougher to navigate through those waters. But if we had held on and not sold and we were able to get through the 2008 to 2010 downturn, I think when we came out of that, I mean, we could have sold the business for a lot more money than what we sold it for back in 2007. Well, I think a price tag north of 300 million is definitely worth celebrating. I would love to shift gears and talk about your stint building Spreecast, which ultimately didn't perform as planned. So could you share some more context and takeaways on that experience? Yeah, so... Our vision was to kind of bring some of the best of video technology, Skype-like video technology, where people can interact face-to-face in real time, you know, across the corners of the globe, to bring that technology and marry it with kind of social media. So at the time we started Spreecast, obviously, you know, Facebook and Twitter were already significant platforms, and Skype was a significant kind of communication utility, but there wasn't really a way for you to actually have face-to-face interaction within the realm of social media. Social media at the time, and largely today, was all about these kind of static, small, short bites of communication. So things like tweets or status updates or posting a photo or maybe posting a video. But people weren't actually interacting face-to-face. And I felt that there was kind of a level of a false facade that people were putting up on social media so that the human interaction wasn't authentic. And I felt like when people interact face to face, if you're you know, having a meal with someone or if you're in the same room and having a conversation with someone or socially connecting with someone at the bar, you know, there's a much more real and human connection and authentic connection that occurs than when people are posting like status updates on Facebook. And so I felt like bringing those technologies to social media would be a positive for society and would be something that people would benefit from. And that was the reason why I started Spreecast. And the first product we built, which was called Spreecast, was you know, a way for people to connect face-to-face and have conversations and dialogue. It was used by lots of folks for just conversations around current events or things that were happening in the political landscape. It was often used by journalists to have conversations with their readers or their constituents around their particular areas of expertise. You know, ESPN was using it to talk about sports. Wall Street Journal was using it to talk about business. But we didn't get the monetization of it and the combination of not getting to enough scale and also not really figuring out monetization just ultimately led me to the conclusion that 
it wasn't going to make it as a product. And so we pivoted to another product. And so we kind of went through this a couple of times and it's kind of had similar experiences where we had some users and some uptake, but not enough to make it a real business. And so that's the short version, but we could go deeper on any of that. And as a former operator yourself now in an investing role, is there anything you think that's unique about your prior operating experience that further differentiates yourself as an investor? Yeah, I think there are a few for sure. Some of them are sort of specific to that business and others are more general. I guess I'll focus on the general ones. You know, I would come back to the point I made earlier, which I think startups are really hard. And I think that that's probably one of the key learnings from both of my startup experiences. And I think that gives me a perspective that's helpful as an investor as well, which we can come back to. So that's number one. I'd say number two is advertising-based business models where the idea is to get a huge number of users to then sort of generate revenue from ads. I think for me personally, they can be very successful. I mean, Facebook's been a hugely successful company. I mean, Twitter is successful. And these are businesses that make money from ads. I mean, Google is primarily makes its money from ads. So obviously it can work, but you need such scale to make, to move the needle that, you know, it's hard to solve that kind of chicken and egg issue of having enough scale to generate enough revenue. You just need to raise a lot of capital to get to that scale to really be able to drive enough revenue to kind of then be self-sustaining. So I personally think those businesses are challenging. And, you know, as an investor, probably, you know, sort of less inclined to invest in ad-based businesses. And then a third thing I would say, which is that business really was changing a consumer behavior. Like there, there was no consumer behavior really where people were having kind of face-to-face -face conversations in kind of a public setting, you know, using live video online. And there still really isn't today. I mean, that doesn't really exist today. So the, the learning is the idea of starting a business that's going to change user behavior or change consumer behavior, it just increases risk dramatically. Like, you know, I think maybe you could argue sort of Twitter and, and even Facebook were new. There wasn't like previous paradigms of those companies. So they successfully kind of changed consumer behavior in a way. But I think doing that is hard to do. And so, you know, when you are starting a business that's kind of addressing an existing market that where either consumers or businesses are already doing something and you're just trying to make it easier, better, or more efficient, you know, at least you're not really changing behavior as much as improving a market and creating transparency or creating efficiency. And I think, you know, that's just a learning, which is if, if you're doing something that's going to actually change behavior, if you're expecting that to happen, your risks are, are I think, are, of success or likelihood of success is just lower. And I can see how that plays into your investing mindset now, where coming from an operational background in both good and bad times can really differentiate you as an investor. So are there any specific aspects of your operational experience that you think really separated you from the pack? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, a huge part of our of value proposition at Kraft is the fact that all three of the general partners here have been operators. So all three of us, David Sachs, Bill Lee, and myself, have all started companies, run companies, you know, CEO, founder of companies, and have had successful exits with those companies. So obviously David founded Yammer, Bill founded a company called Remark in the late 90s that was acquired by Critical Path, and, and I founded StubHub. So all three of us you know, kind of have gone through that whole life cycle of starting a company, hiring employees, raising capital, fighting competition, acquiring customers, building a business, getting users and revenue, and, and ultimately exiting a business. So I think that is a huge benefit to the entrepreneurs we work with because we believe that the number one 
sort of element of value that we can bring to an entrepreneur that an entrepreneur can really get from a venture investor is that advice and that sort of sounding board when things get tough, when things are not going well. And invariably, in every single company, there's moments where things are not going well. And hopefully things are going well more than they're not going not well, but regardless, there's gonna be times when sort of the shit hits the fan. And we wanna be there for those founders when they need advice, when they need input. And to get that advice from someone who's been through it, who's done it, who's been through those moments, who's had you know existential moments, I think just provides a level of credibility and value that these founders can get from us that many other venture investors don't have. There are some obviously who have operating experience, but even many of the investors who have operating experience haven't necessarily been the founder CEO. And there is a difference between being the founder CEO and being the VP of product or some other role. Yeah. I mean, when I reflect on my own experience as an investor, it's my number one frustration that I haven't had that founder's experience where there's that true empathy with all the ups and downs of building a business, whether that be exceeding a sales target or stressing over making payroll. So that really resonates with me and leads me to transition to the last part of the podcast here that centers on the title, which is pattern recognition. So then what are some consistent themes or patterns that you see across successful marketplace businesses? Yeah, I tend to focus on marketplaces and, and other kind of transactional businesses. So I look at generally businesses that have a revenue model where there's some sort of transaction, there's some sort of revenue generated. That's most of what I spend my time on. You know, that does reflect my experience as an operator, right? Where I had sort of success at StubHub and not as much at Spreecast. So I tend to kind of focus on those sort of transactional businesses where there's real revenue. You know, there's a couple of things I look for. One, I look for like a great team. So a team that, you know, again, has some of these elements we talked about earlier, but things like passion and, you know, curiosity and creativity and intelligence. So that's number one. I'd say number two, I like to invest in businesses that are focused on markets that are large. And sometimes they're focused on a piece of a market and the piece may be not so large, but their ability, if they get that right, to then expand into kind of peripheral markets that are that are large is also you know something that can work because sometimes focusing on a narrower market is actually a little bit better because it's a little bit easier. There's a little bit less competition, but if you can cement a position in kind of a, a narrow vertical, you can oftentimes expand after you've cemented that position, you can expand into peripheral related businesses as long as they're closely related. And so that's another element that I often look for. You know, another thing from my StubHub experience is the idea of regulated markets. So StubHub, because it was regulated with the ticket scalping laws, you know, it was a market that was sort of this murky, not well understood market. Some people didn't understand if it was even legal to buy a ticket or sell a ticket at any price. And so a lot of times regulated markets can provide interesting business opportunities because other companies might be scared of kind of entering them or it keeps other companies away. Big companies feel like they can't really do it because they have too much to lose to do it. So I think, you know, within reason, obviously, I think regulated markets can sometimes be interesting and sometimes look for that. And then just kind of these industries that are inefficient and kind of historically low tech, I also tend to think are interesting because they're not yet disrupted by technology. And yet there's so many efficiencies that can come from bringing software and technology to them. So industries like real estate or healthcare or trucking, which are you know massive industries, but they don't 
they're now getting more technology, but they're still not as tech oriented as some other industries. And therefore, there's kind of more opportunity to create efficiencies in those markets. So what's a recent bet you've made that fits any of those categories? Yeah, so I've been here for five months. My first investment is in a drayage trucking company, which is, you know, kind of fits right into that. So it's a marketplace for drayage trucking. And drayage trucking is, so it actually fits into a lot of what I just said, because it's a $10 billion, these are US numbers, it's a $10 billion segment of the $700 billion trucking industry. So it's actually a pretty small segment that doesn't have as much focus as some of the other bigger segments of trucking, like LTL and FTL, which are the less than truckload and full truckload segments. But this drayage segment involves picking up the containers at the ports that come off of the container ships and bringing them to the local warehouses. And these truckers, who are mostly independent owner operators, can pick up two of these containers a day, sometimes three. They can go pick one up, bring it to a local warehouse, go back to the port, pick up a second container, bring it back to a, another warehouse. And what this business is trying to do, this company's called Dre Alliance. They're trying to build a marketplace, an Uber-like marketplace for these truck drivers. And that's a, I think it's a perfect example because you know it's a relatively small segment, but still kind of big in a huge market. So if they get drayage right, they will likely have opportunities to expand, but we want them to focus on drayage for now because focus is so important for startups. And they want to focus too. So it's not us trying to make them do something they don't want to do. They are focused on drayage and that we think is a good decision. But we also believe that if they get that right, there may be opportunities to expand. And it's an old inefficient industry like trucking where historically, you know, these guys today, these truckers are getting phone calls from, you know, brokers who are sending emails with the shippers. It's a very inefficient and kind of archaic process. They definitely could benefit from bringing Uber-like transparency. That's great. And what's a recent book you've read that's changed your perspective and why? Yeah, you know, I'm reading a book right now called Thinking Fast and Slow by a guy named Daniel Kahneman, which is, um, have you read that book? Good book. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, it talks about a lot about the brain and how people make decisions and the idea of that there's kind of two systems within the brain. There's what he calls system one and then system two. And system one is kind of your intuition and your fast kind of decision making and your kind of your gut feel or things that really don't require much thought or much energy to make decisions. So you know, driving a car under normal conditions, you don't really think about, you kind of just know how to do it. Or if you see a picture of a sad girl, you kind of know she's sad just by looking at it instantly and looking at her face. So there's certain things like our brain just processes immediately. And then there's this other thing called system two, which requires a lot of thought. You have to like, you know, if I asked you what's, you know, 27 times 14, you're probably not going to blurt it. You don't know that right away. You have to like work it out. You have to spend time on it. You have to put effort into it. And that's where your system two of your brain takes over. So there's kind of two different parts of our brain and how they interact and how they make decisions. And the book goes into a kind of a lot of different examples of how we can oftentimes make bad decisions when we just rely on system one, which is kind of easy decisions that seem easy and you don't really think about, but are sometimes not the right decision. So it's just an interesting book to kind of think about with my own life and my own decision-making and investing, I think is an area where, you know, you can sometimes jump to a, a quick conclusion. You hear something quickly, you can jump to a quick conclusion, but, you know, peeling the onion a little bit and using your system too to really understand the business better, understand the industry, understand the competitive landscape, understand what can go wrong, you know, I think can benefit all of us investors who are looking at investing dollars. I could not agree more with that thesis where oftentimes I recognize in my work that I've got certain biases and need to take a step back and ask myself, is this bias even valid, let alone backed by tangible data? But Jeff, that is all the time we've got for today. I appreciate you joining the show. 
Yeah, thanks so much, John. It was great talking to you. Once again, a big thank you to Jeff for joining us today. I greatly enjoyed sitting down with him to hear about his experiences scaling StubHub and how those experiences are informing his investing decisions today. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Hu. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.